Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Marshall Poe, and welcome to New Books in History. Every week, or when we get the chance, we interview a historian with a new book that we find particularly interesting. We hope that you'll find them interesting as well. This week on the show, we're happy to have Malcolm Rohrbaugh. Mac teaches at the University of Iowa, where I also teach. He's a very distinguished... Hi, my name is Marshall Poe, and welcome to New Books in History. Every week, or when we get the chance, we interview a historian with a new book that we find particularly interesting. We hope that you'll find them interesting as well. This week on the show, we're happy to have Malcolm Rohrbaugh. Mac teaches at the University of Iowa, where I also teach. He's a very distinguished historian of the American West, and he's the author of many, many books and articles. I'll only mention a couple of his books by way of introduction. Um, One is The Land Office Business, The Settlement and Administration of American Public Lands, 1789 to 1837. That from Oxford University Press. It came out in 1968. Another is Aspen, the history of a silver mining town, 1879 to 1893. That also from Oxford University Press. It came out in 1986. And yet a third is Days of Gold, the California Gold Rush and the American Nation. That from the University of California Press, 1997. Today, however, we're going to be talking with Mac about his book, The Trans-Appalachian Frontier, People, Societies, and Institutions, 1775 to 1850. It originally came out from Oxford University Press in 1978. Uh, However, very recently, uh, Indiana University Press has come out with a third edition in paperback. Um, This is a very important work. Um, Andrew Canton, who's a professor of history at the or at Miami University, calls it the definitive history of the subject and says that nothing approaches it. Um, And as I say, we're very happy to have Mac talking about this important book today. Here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Mac. How are you? I'm fine, Marshall. Good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you as well. Um, Today we're talking about your book, The Trans-Appalachian Frontier, People's Societies and Institutions, 1775 to 1850. And thank you again for being on the show. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Um, Perhaps you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. For example, where did you grow up and how did you become interested in history? Uh, well, I was uh, born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, grew up, uh, by and large, in the uh, Boston area, and uh, went to school there. And then after military service, I uh, went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but I really became interested in, in history as an undergraduate and the courses that I took at Harvard, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I found uh particularly interesting in opening up new areas that I hadn't known anything about. Was there a historian at Harvard that particularly influenced you? Yes. uh, Frederick Merck taught this course on uh, westward expansion uh, that he'd been teaching, I think, for, I don't know, 35 or 40 years. (laughs) And uh, uh, I found this course was absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. Fascinating uh, because it talked about these 
uh, the experience of uh, ongoing settlement uh, uh, across the nation. It was something that I'd never thought about. Mm -hmm. And looking back on it now, or even looking back on it 25 years after I took the course, I realized that in many ways it's a terribly old-fashioned course. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nonetheless, it it really sparked my interest and sparked my imagination Mm -hmm. to pursue work in the field. Mm -hmm. How did you choose to go to Wisconsin? Uh, When I got out of the uh, when I got out of the military, I went back to Harvard and I talked to Professor Merck, and I asked him about uh, graduate school, and he told me that he was retiring. And that he was not taking uh, any students anymore. And uh, I asked him where he recommended that I go, and he specifically recommended the University of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and he recommended uh, that I go there to work with Vernon Carstensen. And mm-hmm. so I did, uh, and it was a wonderful graduate experience. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, okay. Um, now, actually, let's turn to the Transoblation Frontier itself. Uh, how did you come to write this book? Well, I wrote a a first book, uh, Marshall, uh, based on my dissertation, which was on public land policy. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you deal with public land policy, you begin with the Northwest Ordinance in 1785. And so I I covered this period roughly from 1785 to 1840. And writing about public land policy, of course, I, I... was specifically focused on the Trans-Appalachian West because that's where uh, the public lands were coming on the market, mm-hmm. were being sold. And so uh, as I was um, sorting out the whole issue of public land policy uh, over this a little bit more than a generation, I became very interested in this uh, early settlement experience, this frontier experience. And I decided after I finished this book and got it published that I would try to pursue it on a on a much larger scale, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually, I guess, how the, the Trans-Appalachian Frontier came to be. I see. Can you put the book in historiographical context? I mean, what had been written about the Trans-Appalachian Frontier uh, prior to your book? Well, at the time uh, that I wrote this uh, book, the... The standard work uh, was R. Carlisle Bewley's, The Old Northwest, published in, I don't know, I think 1953 or so in two volumes, probably uh, 1,200 pages in total. Uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize the year that it came out. Uh, I think, yeah, they don't they don't give books that are 1,200 pages the Pulitzer Prize anymore, <laughs> I think. Well, <laughs> I don't think they give books like this the Pulitzer Prize anymore. Yeah. It, 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 was, it was a kind of encyclopedic accounting of the details of settlement in the Old Northwest. I see. Uh, but, of course... Uh, from my perspective, in a sense, it, it, it gave me some idea about the landscape in the area, but it also reminded me that I didn't want to write a book that was essentially a compendium of factual information. Right, right. And also, it was a book that dealt with only half of the Trans-Appalachian frontier. Mm-hmm. It didn't deal with anything 
south of the Ohio River. I see. Yeah, I see. Uh huh. So and up to this time, of course, uh, the the work uh, uh, on the the south and the southern frontier was largely the work of uh, southern historians. Uh huh. I see. So you sort of combined these two things for the first so time. So I I wanted to combine these things in in a larger in a larger study and see the Trans-Appalachian frontier, that is to say the area from roughly the Pennsylvania border to Des Moines, from roughly the Great Lakes to the um, to the Gulf of Mexico. I wanted to see it uh, as, as a single historical unit mm-hmm, I see. To, to see if I could uh, find a way uh, to write about it effectively as a unit of historical analysis. Uh-huh. I see. Do you think you succeeded? Uh, well, that um, uh, the answer to that comes in in uh, two parts, I think. And the first part is yes, and uh, the second part is really yes, because I think I succeeded in doing this, but I think the new revised edition which I have just published with the Indiana University mm-hmm. Press, uh, is much more effective in doing it. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, as, as any of us look back on stuff that we wrote 20 years earlier, we can all uh, think about about how we could do it better. And I was fortunate uh, in being able uh, to do this again, and I think that the uh, revised edition is... Um, is really much more is, is really much better. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you got the opportunity to produce a revised edition and how the revised edition differs from the original edition? Sure. Yep. Um, about uh, 15 years ago, uh, Indiana University Press uh, approached Walter Nugent, who was then a professor of history at uh, Notre Dame, mm-hmm. and asked him to. Um, edit a 10-volume history of the Trans-Appalachian frontier. Ten volumes. Uh, one volume on each territory that was to become a state. I see. And uh, Walter uh, agreed to do this on condition that he could take me on as co-editor mm-hmm. because I'd written this book, The Trans-Appalachian Frontier, and he knew that uh, I knew a lot about it. And so... I agreed, and so we have done this series uh, for Indiana, and I think um, seven or eight of these volumes are now in print. And uh, so it was in conjunction with this uh, that the the uh, editor at the Indiana University Press, uh, Bob Sloan, uh, talked to me about the idea that I might mm-hmm. write a revised edition mm-hmm of this earlier work. The earlier work had come out in 1978. Um, How does it differ? Well, it differs uh, in these ways. Uh, It expanded some areas and it introduced new areas for analysis. The new areas for analysis, I think, in no particular order, were first landscape. I needed to talk more about landscape, about how landscape changes across 
the Trans-Appalachian Frontier, about how that set, uh, affected the settlement experience as uh, people move out from um, woodlands onto the prairies. Uh, mm-hmm. The second thing is that I did a great deal more with Indian people, mm-hmm. and uh, in so doing, I tried to establish the idea that what we have uh, in this settlement experience on the Trans-Appalachian frontier is that we have an interaction between these two groups, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ang- Anglo-American peoples and Indian peoples, mm-hmm. and the inter- the interaction is not always pleasant, it's not always peaceful, mm-hmm. uh, and it's certainly not always characterized by good faith, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, I think it's central to understanding what happened. Mm-hmm, certainly. The third thing that I really expanded on is the idea of um, the idea of the development of a commercial economy and what I began to realize as I went back and went through this material again uh, is that we think of these people moving out into these areas as pursuing a kind of subsistence economy, uh, a barter economy in Uh which they, they trade goods and services in this kind of thing. And my own sense of looking at this over this 75-year period is that, is that almost from the beginning, but increasingly as you get into the 19th century, families are immediately looking for something to sell. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're, they're looking to enter in to a commercial economy. They're looking to find some sort of, of trade routes. Uh-huh. They're looking to find markets. Uh, they're looking uh, for people who are going to assume the role of merchants, who are going to be sort of middlemen mm-hmm. in this exercise. And this is enormously important, and it's facilitated mm-hmm. on Trans-Appalachian frontier by these great river systems yeah, that I we see. have. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it's funny. You, you just reminded me of one of my favorite anecdotes uh, from Tocqueville. Uh, he comes to the United States, and he explains to his French audience that Americans will buy a house just to sell it, (laughs) (laughs) which must have just blown their mind. They will just buy a house in order to sell it again. They don't live in it. So uh, I see just what you mean, and I think he... he Well, there's a a great line in uh, a French account, which which I'm not doing in in my newest project, in which a French observer writes that uh, this is in the middle of the 19th century, 1850. He says... He says, Americans are unlike any other people in the world. They have no such thing as a home. Yeah, no, that's exactly they, right. They settle into a place. Uh, they develop it. Uh, they uh, raise a house. Uh, they bury two children. <laughs> uh, they turn over the land and make it prosperous. And seven or eight years later, they sell it and move west to a larger holding, <laughs> exactly. start over. Exactly. Say, can, is, is, it, is it possible to imagine such a people? Yeah, no, I know just what you mean. It must have been very interesting from the European perspective that such a thing could happen. I mean, the open frontier oh, must oh. have been just mind-blowing to them. I really think it must have been. Oh, absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. But the, the, one other, the one other change I was going to, to say in the uh, revised yeah. 
is that I I, I became aware uh, of what I think is the central importance of Louisiana mm-hmm. in the way that the Trans-Appalachian frontier unfolds, mm-hmm. and indeed other elements of American history in the 19th century. I mean, we tend to think of Louisiana as important because it enlarges the landed area of the United States, and it lays what Jefferson thought at the time was the foundation for his dream, of course, of an agrarian republic. Uh-huh. But as as I began to look at Louisiana very carefully in this period, say from 1803 to 1812, what I realized was that that American officials in Washington, D.C., it was in Washington, D.C., were grappling with the whole idea of how to assimilate foreign peoples um, into this republic. Mm-hmm. And that this was done this was done on a kind of trial and error basis. Uh, much of it was done awkwardly, but in a sense, there was no precedent for this. Mm-hmm. They were they were making things up as they as they went along. I see and no central plan. They simply were uh, doing this on an ad hoc basis. Then that's right. They were doing it on an ad hoc basis, and 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 the results seemed to fall out like this: that uh, Louisiana, which in many respects had been a multicultural society or a society with very cultural gradients was reduced to two forms, black and white. Mm -hmm. Uh, Black people were slaves and had no rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, White people were free and had all the rights. Mm And in, and, and in doing this, they, they submerged uh, the Louisiana that had existed in 1803. But in terms of other elements then existing in the South at the time, uh, they essentially refused to accept the Louisiana of 1803. I mean, the Louisiana of 1803, for example, had um, black militia companies that were armed. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were just not going to permit that. And was it Claiborne? I think you mentioned the governor of New yeah, Orleans. William too. C. C. Claiborne. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, yeah. He was he was very instrumental in this. And and the Americans, uh, uh, in a sense, held the Louisianans at 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 arm length until the Louisianans could could prove that they were sufficiently uh, American to be admitted to the Union, which they allowed them to do. Yeah, I mean, it, it, if I remember correctly, it seems that Claiborne treated them when he was governor of New Orleans in a kind of high-handed fashion. I mean, oh, I, uh, really imperial. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm reminded. One of the things that he did is he, I, I think, he outlaws the importation of foreign slaves. Yes, and yeah. this this didn't make anybody happy. No, no, and yeah. and it was it was a very it was a very imperial, uh-huh. no, I see. imperial uh, exercise on his part, and it took the Louisianans very much by surprise. I mean, they had read the principal American documents or had them read to them, and they, they felt that this was a republic, right. that they would be uh, admitted to the Union, that they would be permitted to elect their own governor, mm-hmm. uh, their own legislature, mm-hmm. their own representatives in Congress, and two senators. Mm-hmm. 
and that they would then uh, have a degree of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't get to do uh, yeah. any of these things? None of which turned out to be true. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I remember this. Yeah. And, um, I see. But the Americans had to make a compromise. And the, the, the compromise, of course, was the legal system. Uh-huh. And uh, in the end... In the end, Claiborne made the case to Washington, D.C., that to uh, enforce the English common law uh, on Louisiana would be to produce um, chaos. I see. Uh, legal chaos, but also economic chaos. Uh-huh. Down there. Uh, and what sort of legal system did they end up with then? Well, they, they ended up with the Napoleonic Code. Right, the Code Napoleon, yeah, exactly. And uh, th- which they have today, and uh-huh. as you know, the people who want to practice um, law in Louisiana, the, the civil laws that exist there, they go to law school at Tulane or LSU. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and um, the other element was that both sides agreed that intermarriage was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that this would um, paper over a lot of differences. But mm-hmm. I, I'm reminded of this because, of course, the United States was to have uh, s- similar kinds of experiences in 1848 with the closing of the, yeah. uh, of the war against Mexico. Mm-hmm. I see, I see. Yeah, that's very interesting about Louisiana. I, I hadn't really known that, that the... Uh, origins of those peculiarities, which we all are faintly aware of, actually date back to the beginning of the 19th century, but it makes oh, sense. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Uh, let me take you back before the revolution. There are a couple of questions, specific questions, I guess they're not specific, but questions that might be of interest to readers. Um, and this one has to do with the populating of the Transoplation frontier uh, before the revolution. And I was particularly interested to learn that American settlement east of the Appalachians was very limited prior to the Revolutionary War. Um, why exactly was that? Well, it was uh, it was, I think, a combination of of uh, various factors. Uh, certainly, the the threat of Indian peoples was a considerable deterrent. And uh, at the same time, of course, in the period before the revolution, this area is part of the imperial domain. I mean, it's part of the British Empire. The British mm-hmm. Empire makes uh, laws and regulations respecting it. And they were intent, so far as possible, in keeping people out of there because they didn't want to fuel um, tensions and conflict with Indian people. Mm-hmm. And so you were struggling against imperial design. I see. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Americans in the... 1760s and 1770s were never short reasons to confront imperial design. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, some of them uh, did it sort of perpetually. But, but nonetheless, this was part and parcel, and also it was a very intimidating landscape. Mm-hmm. I mean, for you know, for anybody who's driven around in the Appalachians, mm-hmm. uh, it's a real mountain chain. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. Absolutely. So who were the people who pushed beyond the mountains before the revolution? I guess there were some people. Well, the people who pushed beyond the mountains before the revolution were basically uh, people who didn't have anything uh-huh. and who didn't have anything to lose. And so they moved 
they move their families out uh, sufficiently far uh, to get beyond uh, uh, rent collectors, to get beyond the influence of county government, places where they didn't have to pay taxes, mm-hmm. uh, places where there was nobody who really laid any claim to the land, and they simply squatted. Yeah, I see. And these were um, these were people who didn't have anything. Uh-huh. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, I suppose you can say that this is a kind of tradition, that is to say, uh, across the Trans-Appalachian frontier. I see. If I did try to suggest in my book, there's a sort of cutting edge of settlement families uh, who really don't have very much or who are conditioned uh, to a, a, a kind of life like this, a kind of life of, mm-hmm. uh, well, as we talked about before, settling in, making improvements, selling the improvements and moving. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I see what you mean. Now, if I understand it correctly, the British had forbidden settlement of that region because they feared conflicts with the Native Americans. Is that correct? They had indeed. Yeah, so these people were literally outlaws. Did the British do anything oh, yeah. to get them back? No, they were. But as they, as they themselves had planted, I mean, most of them had moved beyond uh, any kind of, of specific institutional reach of, of people who could tell them differently. Right. The, the original Wild West, so to say. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to abuse a metaphor. And and, and so their dangers, uh, essentially, were dealing with Indian peoples, not dealing with officials. Uh-huh. I see what you mean, yeah. So if we could talk just a little bit about uh, the American Indians who were there and also the British, I did notice in the book that during the Revolutionary War, you say that the British uh, were aiding the Native Americans across the frontier. Why exactly did they do this? I'm sorry, why did they win? The the British were aiding the Native Americans across yeah. the frontier during the Revolutionary War itself. Why did the British do this? Well, um, the British had had officials uh, in the form of superintendents of Indian affairs, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, imperial officials who dealt with Indian groups. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the uh, imperial British policy tried to do after uh, 1763 was that they tried to get away from the idea that individual colonies uh, and individual groups in colonies could uh, make treaties with Indians. They mm-hmm. wanted this centralized. I see. So when the revolution broke out, uh, the officials who were in the Indian country and who had contact with these Indian peoples were British officials. Yeah. And they uh, they thought of themselves as um, being loyal and, and carrying out official policy. And also there was a, a secondary dimension, and the secondary dimension is to the extent that they could cause problems in what people at the time called the back country. I see, yes. Uh, this might uh, diminish the capacity of the new embryonic American nation to pursue a war of independence. I see what you mean. Was there any armed conflict between the pioneers, the people that had crossed the frontier, and oh, yeah, the British yeah, in this yeah. area? Could you talk a little yeah, bit about a lot that? Of, a lot of unofficial a lot of unofficial uh, conflict, uh, particularly in the south, which took the form almost of kind of 
guerrilla war. I mean, I see. guerrilla war is not an appropriate term because uh-huh. of course, we're talking about a war with Indian people. Right. There, there was a, uh, uh, there was a lot of this, and the war, like many wars, which are conducted uh, across a large landscape with relatively few people, uh, involved a lot of um, personal score settling. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, and uh, from that perspective, could become very unpleasant. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. And um, are, were there any battles fought? Uh, I mean, do we, are there any named battles that were fought uh, in the translation frontier, or is it just this kind of skirmishing and guerrilla warfare as you describe it? Well, there weren't there weren't really there weren't really major battles. Uh, in in most of the battles, cross that out. In 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 some of the battles that were fought, each side. Used Indian auxiliaries. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, uh, at the Battle of uh, Saratoga, uh, John Burgoyne was using Indian auxiliaries. Uh-huh. And these were mercenaries, basically. Uh, Can we call them that, or were they in the pay of? The- well, they were. They were in the pay. What they were doing essentially was settling scores. Uh, with settlers or other people I around, see. I see. in whom they had long-standing grudges, and so there's this combination of push-pull. I mean, it's the it's it's, it's the pull of of gifts and arms and ammunition and this kind of thing, but also I it's, see. The, it's the the push of anger, and and it was in part Burgoyne's decision to use these auxiliaries. That united so much of the countryside against him around Saratoga. I see. Yeah. I see. At, at a time, as you know, when the revolution uh, broke out, and even afterwards, there were large numbers of people sitting on the fence. Yeah. No, I see what you mean. Did um, the, the, the settlers who were beyond the the frontier think of themselves as Americans, or was it the case that they just didn't like the British? Well, they. They didn't think of themselves in America as, as Americans in the sense that it had any kind of identity. Mm-hmm. They they wanted to live uh, in a world in which they were untroubled uh-huh. by influences of government. I see. Yes, that's an and, old American tradition, isn't it? Well, as I said, uh, as I say somewhere in in, in the book, uh, to the extent that government could provide protection from the Indians to the extent that government could provide good land titles to the extent that government could provide access to a market for their livestock. Um, settlers were happy with either George Washington or George III, right. whoever could do this for them. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see just what you mean. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, if we could shift gears just a little bit again and talk about settlement immediately after the revolution, um, mm-hmm. and I, I was very interested uh, to find out that um, lands west of the mountains were being advertised in the east in order to encourage settlement. If I read this correctly, who was doing the advertising? Well, um, we talk about the period immediately after the revolution. The the only people who had any legitimate claims uh, 
west of the mountains or in the Ohio country, if you like, were these land companies that had been chartered by the Congress of the United States. Mm-hmm. And these were land companies that were influential in the early settlement of Ohio. Mm-hmm. We had uh, attempts on the part of um, other kinds of entrepreneurs, particularly Richard Henderson, uh, to settle uh, communities in Kentucky uh, and later Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And Henderson advertised his uh, uh, his communities. Uh, but this advertising, you have to remember, was largely done by word of mouth mm-hmm. uh, and was uh, not in any sense, I think, the kind of advertising we associate today yes. with, no, with right. print. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Yeah. So um, did the character of the people that moved beyond the frontier change then after the revolution? You mentioned communities moving beyond the frontier. Well, certainly you you, you have two separate stages, I think. One, one is the, uh, the um, continuing conflict with Indian peoples, which runs uh, after the revolution, uh, up until Anthony Wayne's uh, victory at the Battle of Fallen Timbers and the Treaty of Greenville, uh, which establishes uh, American uh, land ownership in uh, portions of what is today Ohio. Mm -hmm. Certainly after that, certainly after uh, the Indian threat had subsided, you have far larger numbers of people coming, and uh, if you look in the um, bluegrass area of Kentucky, for example, in the 1780s and 1790s, you have um, wealthy families coming out. Oh, I see. Wealthy families coming out. The people who come to the bluegrass from Virginia, for example, are bringing slaves with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're buying uh, large tracts of land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have, for the first time, people who are willing to risk, uh, I suppose we might call it investment capital or, mm-hmm. or, or something like that, which suggests the extent to which they feel that there's going to be a degree of civil order. It also suggests, of course, that since this is a newly settled area, land is still relatively cheap by comparison with Virginia, for example. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful opportunity to invest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, as the... Uh frontier expanded in a westward direction um i'm wondering what uh, efforts and whether those efforts were successful uh that the federal government implemented to protect these people because it seems to me that settlement follows the flag or the other way around and i i would i'm interested to find out what you would have to say about that well the the government had for most people uh, out in the West, after 1783, a very limited role, but also a very important role. Uh, It was responsible for controlling Indian peoples and, if you like, pacifying the frontier. It was responsible for um, creating uh land uh, opportunities for people and a large scale sale of land which of course was going to induce settlement 
uh, and it was responsible for a minimum amount of improvements in rivers and harbors and delivering the mail. Mm-hmm. That is essentially the, the three areas where government functioned. But as I say, these were very important areas to the people who lived in the West. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of self-organization, wasn't there? I mean, did the federal government actually achieve all of these goals, or was it to the citizens on the frontier themselves to actually organize some of these things? Well, I think the, I, I think the, the federal government, uh, as, as you suggest, was not uh, really effective in handling all of these things. I yeah. think it was effective in handling the issue of the public lands. Mm-hmm. And it dealt with Indian peoples. Uh, it, through various devices and ruses, created land sessions. It surveyed the land and offered the land uh, on the market in public sales yeah. and, and so opened it up. But basically, uh, these issues in, in the West, like security, for example, and the development of... Um, commercial trade, this was a factor of numbers. I mean, when you have large numbers of people coming and when you reach a kind of of critical mass, you have a, a, a permanence. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. And actually, this leads me to another question that I had. Um, it's my understanding that prior to uh, 1785, the American government prohibited settlement um, to the northwest of the Ohio River. They did? Uh, they, they did because... Uh, they, they feared starting a, a wars with the Indians. But then in 1785, they issue a land ordinance that allows the sale of land in that area. But the Indians were still there. What had changed? Well, the ordinance specifies the first... Uh, the first article of the ordinance specifies that the federal government will treat with Indians for sessions of land. I see. And it uses the phrase... I think I'm correct here, the utmost good faith. The utmost good faith will always be exercised toward Indian peoples in our negotiations with them. And it was, it was very clearly understood by the ordinance that no land could be surveyed and could be offered for sale mm-hmm. that had not been acquired from Indian peoples by treaty. Mm-hmm. And the treaties had to be done uh, by the federal government, not by states. Not by I states. see. Uh-huh. And did they actually follow through on those promises? Did they make treaties with the... They made the treaties. Uh, the issue of the utmost good faith, of course, is something that has to be put in italics. Yeah, uh, utmost good faith is a difficult thing to find in um, any <laughs> era, I think. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, quite right. They're nice-sounding <laughs> words, but difficult to achieve, I think. Yeah. But, but what, what I always found interesting was that that they chose to use this phrase. Mm-hmm. It didn't just say the federal government is going to treat with Indian peoples and after suitable treaty-making exercises, the land will be surveyed and sold. They, somebody insisted on writing this into the document. Uh-huh. And why do you think they did that? Well, I think because they were very concerned uh, about the way these, this 
these treaty making exercises were going to be conducted. Yeah, and I think they were probably right to be concerned. And they were probably right yes. to be concerned. <laughs> I think, given yeah our experience, definitely. Uh, let me ask you a, a final question. It's a very broad question. Um, what was life like for the settlers, and what sort of communities did they live in on the frontier? Maybe there were various different communities, but if you could just speak a few words about that, that would be great. Well, uh, I think it's like so many other things. Uh, I think it's like so many things in our world. Uh, it, it depended on who you were and where you were. Mm -hmm. For example, if you were in a if you were a slave in the South on the frontier, you were on the the cutting edge of opening up. Uh, really immense landscapes for cotton cultivation. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, work of the most difficult and dangerous kind. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were um, individual settler families, uh, once again, it depended uh, in part on the kinds of uh, resources you had. If you had resources uh, to buy a farm, uh, if you had resources uh, to, to go out and, and manage on the farm the first couple of years, uh, you could do well. Mm -hmm. At the same time, people who were out there were prey to national economic trends that I talk about. Yeah. You know, there's mm -hmm. an economic crisis in 1819. There's another one in 1837. Uh, and the fact that these affected so many people on the frontier suggested the extent to which uh, these areas had become involved in the national economy. I see, yeah. And so I, I would say that it, you know, it, it depended in, in, in substantial part on, on who you were and where you were, but I think the same thing prevails uh, mm -hmm. across the period, and that is that people uh, who were economically well-to-do, uh, tended to be individuals who served on um, the county courts. Mm -hmm. They were the people who made and enforced local laws. Mm -hmm. And there is a, uh, and, you know, while we talk about the importance of hard work and sacrifice and this kind of thing and opening up farms, it's also true that there are other dimensions that can end up favoring some groups over other groups. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a line, there's somebody that I quote who's in, I don't know, Tennessee or something like that, about 1815, and he's, and he's talking about a case, a legal case that the family has pursued in another county and has lost. Mm -hmm. And he said, he says something to, uh, like this, he says, um, you can say that we did not get justice, and we didn't get justice. But in truth, you only get justice where you pursue legal proceedings with your friends. Yeah. With your friends, you get justice. I see what you Without mean. your friends, you don't get it. Right, I see what you mean. And that yeah. is 
that is the nature of the world. Yeah, no, I think it's still true today to some extent. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's still true today. Now, the reason I asked the question is that I think that for, uh, I don't know, many Americans, and I'm not an expert on the American West, certainly that a, a lot of our ideas about life in the West come from things like Laura Ingalls Wilder. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Which, is, which is a book that I remember extremely well. I grew up in Kansas, and so it was... Uh, it was it was absolutely mandatory for everyone to read this book, and, and I remember um, I remember actually not getting the sense that uh, that they were very well integrated into the economy. And I guess your book says something different. That in fact, people on the frontier were quite integrated and were subject to these ebbs and flows of national economic life. Well, I think that I think that's true, and I think um, you know, for, for many of them, at certain times, to their sorrow. Uh, because as they moved into uh, an, an, an economic mainstream uh, in in times of prosperity, they prospered, mm-hmm. and they didn't realize how vulnerable they were. Yeah, well, that's that's true today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then and then things uh, uh, things change, and commodity prices turn down, uh-huh. and uh, all of a sudden there's no market. Right. Uh, for what they're producing, and mm-hmm. uh, people would get angry. Yeah, no, I imagine that they did. Now, they were involved in mostly commodity production for markets in the East? Then? Yeah, it was uh, large-scale commodity production, and it particularly had to do, of course, with um, livestock. I see. I didn't know that. I thought it would be uh, cereal grains and things like that. but it was Well, livestock. it was uh, cereal grains, and so you have... Uh, Corn production, and then in in uh, uh, areas particularly like uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, you have wheat, uh-huh. large scale wheat uh, production, and in the South, of course, it's cotton. Cotton, yeah. Uh, everywhere that cotton can be grown, but but the basic, uh, the fundamental uh, economic uh, advantage that everybody found initially was livestock. I see. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in the Ohio Valley, it was cattle. Uh, everywhere else on the frontier, it was hogs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's enormously important when uh, hogs begin to be processed. Mm-hmm. That is to say, you can you can find ways to process hogs uh, so that they don't have to be consumed right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't and we don't we know that's true in Iowa? Don't we? <laughs> We're experts on it, don't we? And it, it, well, it used to be. Yeah, right. And most and of that, before that moved to North Carolina. Yeah, right. Uh, but um, so it, it's enormously important that you have the pork packing that begins in um, in Cincinnati, for example, as early as 1815. Uh-huh. Really, I didn't know that. Uh-huh. And the uh, the shipment then of hogs. In barrels down. The, really, is that right? In barrels. This is before yeah. tins, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Hog in a barrel. I, I, can you can you order that for somebody for Christmas or something? I don't know. Well, I think you ordered it. <laughs> I think you ordered it for your plantation. Yeah. No, I imagine that's true. Like, I actually one of the things that we used to eat. I don't know if this is pertinent or not, but when I was growing up, my grandfather, who was a cattle rancher, used to order these things called Smithfield hams. And I don't know oh, if you yeah, I know Smithfield hams. They're incredibly salty. 
They are, oh, they're, yeah. they're just salt. And my well, grandfather that's loved because them. Because they're designed to last. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So I'm thinking this is somehow related. I, I didn't ever find them very tasty, but my grandfather, he really loved them and would have them brought from back east, the Smithfield ham. Yeah, so maybe that's related to what But you're they're talking. still advertised. You no, know, they're still around, absolutely. You can still get these things. I, I don't, not, no offense to the Smithfield people, but not to my <laughs> taste. But anyway, well, Mac, we've taken up a lot of your time, and, and we really, really appreciate it. Let me close with, with one uh, uh, sort of out question. What are you working on now? Uh, well, after I uh, wrote the Trans-Appalachian Frontier Marshal, I wrote a history of Aspen, Colorado as a silver mining mm-hmm. uh, uh, town that turned into a city, and I then wrote a history of the California Gold Rush mm-hmm. uh, and called uh, Days of Gold, mm-hmm. California Gold Rush in the American Nation, and as a spinoff of that, I'm now writing a history of the French in the California Gold Rush. I didn't even know there were French in the California Gold Rush. Well, it's it's quite surprising. Yeah, well, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. It there is, were to me, it there is, large yeah. numbers of French, and it was it's very um, it's very unusual and indeed fascinating because the French are not a people who ordinarily immigrate. Uh huh. I see. Particularly to non-speaking French places. I see. But uh, some 25, perhaps even 30,000 of them came to California in response to the discovery of gold. I see. Really, I didn't know that. So is there any um, ETA on this book, or is it going to be a series of articles? Well, uh, the ETA uh, has been moved. Aren't they always? (laughs) (laughs) Aren't they all? It's been moved upon occasion. But right now, I would hope that uh, 2008 would be a good year. I'm, well, I hope so, and we'll look forward to the appearance of that. And our guest today has been um, Malcolm Rohrbaugh, and we've been talking about the Trans-Appalachian Frontier, People, Societies, and Institutions, 1775 to 1850. Uh, the third edition, an improved edition, has just come out from Indiana University Press, and I'd just like to say thanks very much for speaking with us, Mac. Thanks, Marshall. I enjoyed the opportunity. All right. Talk. Thanks very much. Okay, Bye-bye. take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Malcolm Rohrbaugh and a discussion about his book, Trans-Appalachian Frontier, People, Societies, and Institutions, 1775 to 1850. Uh, We'd like to thank Mac again for being with us, and we hope you join us again next week. Take care now.